Welcome to another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church. Okay, easy. No, no. I just, I, I didn't want to, uh, I know we got a little behind there because the morning tea break went a little long, so I, I didn't want to, um, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go past the time where you get irritated at me, and that, that, that's the whole thing. So, um, so anytime, anytime we want, anytime we preach or teach, we want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and you want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. You want people having more discussions, not less discussions. Yeah. Um, the, 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 a lot of times we think, um, we think it helps faith to make it more solid, but actually the more immovable something is, the, the more fragile it is. And so if, if, you, if you create your faith out of 50 bricks and all it takes is somebody po- poking one brick and the whole thing falls down, that's not solid at all. Actually, actually a, a faith that's solid is one that's flexible and moving and can embrace all in spite of certainty, uh, in spite of a lack of certainty. And so um, I, I want to, I have something, in the first session, I was obviously going for your head um, and your hands. At the end, I gave us stuff. Uh, I, w- I want to finish one head thought, and then I want to move into our heart and our hands um, for the second one. Um, so um, the, on the whole, I want to, I didn't, I didn't feel like I ex- exposited that, um, that sacred object thing as well as I could. So I, I want to come back to that for a second because it's critical. Um, the... I got an opportunity a, a, a little while ago to sit at a table with six Harvard grads. And, uh, and they had been coming to this church, and they were asking this pastor questions that he felt ill-equipped to answer. And so he, he was brave enough to go, I, I don't know, but if, if you'll journey with me, I've got someone that Mike can help uh, if you would have a, a meal with him. And so we ended up. I ended up sitting at this round table with these six Harvard grads. And here's what they said. They said, we want to talk to you about Christianity as a worldview. So if I... Hang on. If I... Um, they, they said, if we, if, if we remove the Bible, because we think it's largely full of bupkis anyway, Right? So if we, it just says crazy things in there. So if we, if we take that out your hands and we take atonement out your hands, right? So if we, because if, they, they, they were saying, we think the idea that someone had to be tortured and killed for a God who commands us to forgive without that. So a God commands us to forgive without that. Turns out he needs to torture someone to be able to forgive people. That sounds lunatic, right? So if we take, if we take that away, and we take the Bible away, and let's just talk about Christianity as a worldview, which I really appreciated from them because they, they, weren't going, they weren't going, because we can't buy this, we're going to not even have a chat with you, right? They found common ground, and they said, can we talk starting from here, which is what intelligent people do. And so they, they said, if, if we remove the Bible and we remove atonement, can you tell us what makes Christianity special as a worldview? How does Christianity set itself apart so that people can find a more meaningful life here on earth if they see the world that way versus other ways? Can we have that chat? And I was like, oh yeah, we can do that. Let's do that, right? And so I'm thinking that maybe without that profound of language, I'm thinking as pastors, you're having people ask you some version of that all the time, right? Because what the stats are showing is that, is that people under 30, they're not losing their faith in Jesus. They are losing their faith in Scripture. And it's our fault because we're controlling the narrative around Scripture. So when the people who control the narrative around Scripture are presenting Scripture in a way that people can't even chew it, um, it's, we need to... It's on us. So, so this is what I said. And, 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 and it, the reason I'm sharing it with you is because in that moment, it worked. And if it worked, maybe it's a good way for us to frame some language around a Christian worldview. So if someone was to ask you, um, and it has to do with the sacred object, which is why I segued into it. If someone asks you, what if you take atonement out and the view, 
the short answer in one sentence is, is that a Christian worldview is the only worldview in the world that frees you from the lie of the sacred object. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Desire. Desire has two elements to it, and if you remove either element, desire becomes meaningless. The two elements are object desire. Object desire is that thing which you want, okay? The second element is object cause. Object cause is the thing standing between you and what you want, okay? So let me, let's be really simple with it. When you were three, you wanted to eat all the chocolates. That was your object desire. Your mother was the object cause. You cannot eat all the chocolates, all right? So object desire is part of desire, but if you have object desire without object cause, like no struggle, no process, no, no way to get there, if you just got everything you wanted all the time, you'd be bored to death. That was Solomon's entire point in Ecclesiastes, that if we organize our life around simply attaining the object desire, we will find the entire thing meaningless. Because actually all of life is found in the object cause, not in the object desire. Like if, if, you, if, if all of our life is formulated around how do we get what we want, even when we get what we want, it's not what we thought. So what happens is, is that we then run ourselves into a pattern of simply living from depression to melancholy. Depression is wanting something that you do not currently have. Melancholy is getting what you think you want, which then creates a whole, well, that didn't do it, so I have to create another object desire, which then creates pain and depression to try to get there, to only get the object desire to realize that didn't do what I was trying to do. Either way, one, one, um, one philosopher said it this way, that to, to live simply to get the object desire is, is signing up for a life that vacillates between pain and boredom. The idea is, is that we go through a lot of pain to get to the process to get what we want, only to be bored with what we get. And we've all been guilty of that. We've all thought, if I just get that car, I'll feel better. Only to 45 days later, you look in the garage and you're going, paying how much for that is going down? How fast in value? I thought it would, it, right? It's, it's, that, it's, it's, it's that idea. And here's the problem with desire. Desire, if you remove either part, like if you have object cause with no goal, that's meaningless struggling. If you have object desire with no object cause, you're going to be bored to death. And this is how Christianity in the Western world... Has if there's a way to possibly stuff up heaven, white Christians have done it. And here's what they've done. They've said, a place you get to go when you die where you get everything you always want all the time with no process. For billions and billions and billions of years, you're going to get anything you always want. Well, that sounds like hell. That's actually horrendous, actually. The Twilight Zone figured that out. In 1938, there was a Twilight Zone episode about a wicked man named Robert Valentine. He was a horrendous man. He died, um, and he didn't realize he was dead because when he woke up in the afterlife, it all looked the same. So this wicked man wakes up in the afterlife, it all looks the same, and there's this angel named Pip, and Pip is there to escort him into the afterlife and show him around. Robert Valentine does not know he's dead, and so he reverts to what he is, which is a criminal, and he reaches and pulls a weapon to rob Pip. Pip rolls his eyes, does like that, the weapon drops, he says, shut up, Robert, get in the car. Robert gets in the car, he says, I'm Pip, I'm an angel, and I'm here to show you around the afterlife, and he says, first I'm going to take you to your house. So he drives up to this mansion, like unbelievable mansion. And Robert says, is that your house, Pip? And Pip says, no, that's your house. That's where you live. Oh, and by the way, in that drawer is $3 million, which in 1938, you may as well be saying, blah, 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 right? You may as well be saying a bajillion, right? And he says, Robert, what do you like to do? And Robert says, I like to gamble. He says, great, let's go to the casino. So they go to the casino. And he, and he takes the whole $3 million and places it on something and wins. So now it's six. And then he does it again. Now it's 12. And then he plays again and he wins. 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 And he's realizing he can't lose. And he's loving this. He's like, this is flipping amazing. The show fast forward six weeks. And Robert Valentine still is not lost. 
but he's losing his mind from boredom. And he says to Pip, he says, Pip, oh, Pip, you got to stop this. I'm losing. You got to stop this. You got to stop this. Let me remind you, I was a wicked man. What, what, what did I do to deserve heaven? This is ridiculous. And Pip says, heaven? Who told you this was heaven? This is hell. And it goes blank, and it says this. So Robert Valentine was condemned by God for his wickedness to an eternity of giving everything he always wanted. When you have object desire without object cause, the whole thing becomes meaningless. And that's what sets Christianity apart. No matter where you go in the world, the object desire of all people, dumbed down to its most basic thing, is the presence of God. Whatever word you want to use around that, peace, wholeness, abundant, fulfilling, whatever. You can say God. You can say the presence of God, the fullness of God, whatever. The object desire is we desperately want to feel whole because we know there's something missing. That's the object desire. The object desire is the presence of God. In Christianity... The object cause is Jesus. So Jesus is going, you can't get, you can't get to that except through me. So that, that the object cause is Jesus. And all of us know that in every place in life, all of life is found in embracing the object cause. It is much more fun to shop for a car than to actually sign for it. It's much more fun to shop for a house than it is to sign for it. It's much more fun to get to know your spouse than to get to the end of knowing them. Much more fun. It's, 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 it's much more fun. It's, it's like, like great couples are, are not the ones going, yeah, we know everything about each other. There's nothing more to learn. Great couples are the ones still exploring, right? Which the ancient rabbis, when they talked about heaven, they didn't talk about a place where you get everything you want all the time. They talked about a place of endless exploration. When you get to, when, when you get to what you think the end is, there's another door, and then that door is a thousand more doors. And so it's an endless exploration. Now, how does that work? Because in, this is what sets Christianity apart as a worldview. Christianity says that we're all looking for the presence of God. We're all searching for the object, desire, the presence of God. But in Christianity, the object cause is Jesus. Jesus said, but in Christianity as a worldview, it flips the script. And it says, oh, by the way, Jesus is God. So Christianity is the only worldview in the world that wraps your object cause and your object desire up in the same person, which fundamentally creates an eternity of endless exploration that is meaningful. And that's what sets it apart. They said, that is, yeah, we're, we're going to continue our journey because that is compelling. Sometimes, look, wise people don't use the Bible to make a point when they told you before the conversation they don't believe it. Wise people don't start where people aren't. Good communicators figure out where common ground is and start there. That you, you, you listen, you are not a Christian because the Bible tells you to be. You shouldn't. Because you know what? It's only relatively recently in history that we even had a Bible. People were following God way before the Bible was written. And you, you have figured out, whether you can name it or not, you have figured out that all of life is wrapped up in embracing the object cause. So is Christianity. All of life is in embracing Christ and the process to know him because he is the way to the object desire. But it's wrapped in the same person. So that is just, uh, just one more food for thought for your mind. Um, and, um, and, and hopefully that um, invokes. So once again, we don't want to simply believe in the cross and resurrection. We want it to be fundamentally the thing that shifts the way we see our whole world. And, and, and the cross is not that which has meaning. For, for, for God to humble himself, put on flesh, and allow himself to be executed by a local government for the sake of all of humanity is not something that has meaning. It's something that defies meaning. It, that, 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 is why, that is why you could preach 40 different messages on the cross, never repeat yourself, and never be wrong. The, 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 cross is, the cross is not that which has meaning. The cross is that which defies meaning. Um, and so, and so the, the trouble when we talk about the cross is, is that we tend to default to the one that we're most comfortable with, which for most Western Christianity is atonement. It's, oh, you could be forgiven, right? And so it's, it's that. And okay, yes, amen. 
yes, we, we, are, we are okay with God because of the finished work of Jesus before the foundation of the world as manifested physically at a cross. Okay, amen. All right, yes. But, but I think we default to that at the expense of a lot of the other meanings. Like, like you, you read the New Testament when they're struggling to find meaning around the cross. They're, 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 in one place, it's called the forgiveness of sins. In another place, it's called the cancellation of debt. In another place, it's called the, the confrontation of slavery. In another place, it's called this. In another place, in, in, in another place it, it points out that God is not a God who watches us suffer, but rather is a God that engages suffering. In, in, in another place, it's this. In another place, one, there's one that I don't think gets enough playtime, and I, I, want to, um, I want to bring it out to us today. I had 17 things I could have done in this session. And, and I landed on this, even though it wasn't my first thought, I landed on this, which makes me think it might be a prophetic word for you guys in a way that's meant to bless you in some way. So, um, so I, I want to I uh, explore this um, this way. This is, uh, if you could bring that first slide up, uh, this is in Ephesians. Uh, Paul's trying to, um, you know, put words around the cross. For, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, in context, this is talking not about peace with God, but peace between me and you, right? So this is about, um, this is about that. that, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so by making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, so, so in one eventual way, the cross is not something to be believed in. It's something to shift the way we see our world. And in one way to shift our world, the end of hostility. The idea is, is that no matter what we disagree on, if we back off far enough, we're going to put our hands around the foot of the same cross, and that should be what unites us. That, that, that there's nothing more uncompelling in the world than two Christians going for each other in a public forum for the whole world to see. That, that, that actually, that, that evinces a denial of the cross and resurrection, not an embracing of it. It is disgusting. Um, let me, um, this was alluded to in, in, with Jesus as well in his first sermon, I think third line. Check this out. This is very serious language. Watch this. Next slide. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do you really want to give a go at exegeting the theological ramifications of that statement? Red letters. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Is he allowed to tie our basic disposition in conflict to whether or not we'll be called sons of God or not? It's not my pay grade. Let's back up to where we agree. Would we all agree that our basic disposition in conflict is incredibly important to Jesus? So let's back it off to that and go and let's agree with that. And, and unless, because my first thought when I saw this was maybe it's just a one-off line. It's not. 34 verses later. You've heard it said that you shall love your enemy, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Oh my goodness, he does it again. Jesus is tying our basic disposition in conflict to whether we'll be known as sons of God or not. How seriously have we taken that? I cannot tell you how convicted I became in January when I was studying for all this. It became an eventual decision for my life because I had to repent because I was a sinner and I was wrong. Because my basic disposition in conflict was, how can I prove that I'm smarter than you? End point. I cannot do it anymore and live with myself. In Romans 14, Paul says, never, ever, ever quarrel over a disputable matter. 
In Philippians 2, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So who should, who are Christians? Christians should be the people the outside world looks at and right, wrong, or indifferent. Well, at least they don't argue with each other. <laughs> Has that been our MO? Why have we, do we not take, this is like red letter stuff here. Let me illustrate this with a story that was an eventful thing for my life. It just took me a while to apply it. I got invited to Jerusalem. I'd, I'd spoke at a conference with his son-in-law, and um, his son-in-law was, so, was moved by some of the stuff. So, so this guy, he's booked out two and a half years in advance, and, um, and he, he rang me and said, I've been listening to you. Um, I'd like to invite you to speak to my synagogue. Um, um, and then as a part of your compensation, I'll t- take you around and teach you history. And, um, and I said, oh, okay. So, um, so I went, and I, I was so scared to preach in the synagogue. I said, what am I going to tell you guys? Like, you know, I mean, I, mean I, I could talk about marriage and sex or something. Like, I, you know, I don't, because that's my, my master's degree is in psychology with, marriage, with an emphasis on marriage, family, and sexuality. So, I mean, like, I, I don't want to tell these people what the Bible says. And can, would you uh, at least agree, feel the tension there? Anyway, he said, he said, no, 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 we love your stuff. He said, you, you, you're our style because we, we like to discuss afterwards. And I was like, oh, okay, I can make that happen. And um, even if the discussion is, what an idiot, I can make that happen. <laughs> and so he was taking me, he was taking me around and... Um, now, keep in mind, this is the top history expert in Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem, and he's teaching me history. Now, he speaks English, but it's not his first language. And he shared something with me that was so profound, I was amazed and in awe. But you're English speakers, so you'll get this. I said, really? What? Really? Now, I was expressing amazement. He took it as a fight. He took it as, I disagree with you, right? I'll never, I'll be 90 years old laying wherever I'm laying and remember this. The top history expert in Jerusalem's response to that was, oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, let it be me. I was confused, which made it worse. Because my response to that was, what? He said, oh, shame. Peace between us is the most important thing. If one is wrong, let it be me. If the outside world looks at our conversation, may they see us embrace Christ may be glorified. I would rather the world see peace than I need to be right about anything. Now here's a guy who could have decimated me in an argument. First of all, I wasn't disagreeing with him. It was at that moment that I figured out he thought I was disagreeing with him. And so I said, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, did you think I was disagreeing with you? And he said, weren't you? And I said, okay, first, I'm very sorry. Please forgive my tone of voice. I made you think I was disagreeing with you. That's first. Second, you're an Israeli history expert. We're in Israel talking about history. If I disagree with you, it's me. That's second. Third, this is day one of a four-day master class, 14 hours a day. Let's just go and get this straight right now. I'm not going to disagree with you the entire time when it's on Israeli history. Okay? I said, I was amazed, man. And he said, were you amazed? I said, I was amazed. He said, oh, good. He said, I knew I was right about that, but man, (laughs) honestly, 
He said, Shane, the world needs to see us at peace more than anybody needs to be right about something. And he said, we will not dispute. And I'm like, I am so moved by this. That, and you know what I found? It's pastors like my rabbi, that guy. The ones that know the most about the Bible are the least belligerent. And, and that's sons of God stuff. So, so, so that requires a discussion around two things. If, if Jesus is, if, if our basic disposition of conflict is very important to Jesus, then we need to understand, one, how hostility works, and two, then how peacemaking works. Now, there's a great story in Scripture about how hostility works, and it's a long passage. I'll just tell the story, and your pastors, you know the story. It's the story of Samson. Um, so Samson's a lunatic. Um, he has no regard for the rules, the law, respect for his parents. He's just, he's rebellious. He's just flipping out of control, okay? And um, Samson would not be somebody that you'd ever reach just because he's just out of control. And so this is how the story goes. He, he falls in love with a Philistine girl, which was, nah. And, then, and his parents said, please don't do this. She worships other gods. He said, I'll love who I want, right? And so he sneaks out of the house. And now, if you're going to sneak out of the house against your parents' wishes, running into a lion is a good way to get caught. But, ev but evidently, he was skilled enough and trained enough and armed enough to kill the lion. So he kills the lion, goes sees the girl, comes back. Uh, and then in, when he went back to, to, to the Philistines, the, the, the carcass is still there because the, the garbage collecting people hadn't picked it up. So, so it's still there. And evidently, there was bees that had taken nest in there, evidently. And so, and so he, um, he does something again against the rules and reaches into a dead thing to eat, which is against the rules and disgusting. Then, then he goes and meets with the, girl's, with the girl's family, and he thinks, I'm going to prove I'm smarter than them. So he says, I bet I can tell you a riddle you can't answer, right? And of course he can. Why? Because he's just going to make it up off the top of his head. No one else saw it, right? So they say, deal. He said, here's the deal. If you guess, I owe you 30 clothes. If you don't, you owe me 30 clothes. They go, okay. He goes, what's uh, um, out of the eater? Something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Bet you can't guess. Bet you can't guess. And of course they can't guess. Why? He just made it up. So seven days into this, they're on their last day, and they, he's engaged. They tell his fiancee, uh, do whatever you got to do to get him to tell you. And so she does whatever she has to do, which who knows what that is. I have a good guess, but she does whatever she has to do. And he tells her, he says, now you keep this between me and you. I'll tell you, you keep it between me and you. Of course she doesn't. She goes and tells her family. Her family then at the last minute guess the, the riddle. They say, what is, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And if you're the type of person that's looking for a life verse, this is a direct quote from the Bible. Samson says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would never have guessed that. Uh, I want to make that into a refrigerator magnet, you know? If you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have guessed that. So now, now he owes them 30 pieces of clothes. And what does he do? Does he go to the target by, no. He goes and kills 30 of their family members and strips them naked and says, I owe you 30 clothes. Here's the 30 clothes of the family members. This guy, so, this guy loses a bet and kills 30 people. He's out of control. They think, they think we'll get him. So they give his wife to somebody else and then offer him her little sister. You would not have wanted to be a woman back then. They offer him his little sister. He then responds by tying foxes together and burning all of their crops, which is a year's economy. He then responds by burning that lady's family to death. He then responds by killing a thousand of them. They then respond by tricking him, blinding him, and enslaving him. He then responds by pulling an entire building down on them. So what started as a joke no one understood escalated to everybody dying. Like, now, if you're married, you understand this. Have you ever had an argument with your spouse that started about how to cut a tomato? Well, my mom cuts it. Like, I ain't your mama, right? And so it starts with how to cut a tomato, and it escalates 
into insulting the other person's mother. <laughs> now, now, sometimes your mother-in-law is insultable, but sometimes it's just a matter of hostility, right? And, and that's how it works. Here's what, here's what happened. A joke no one understood eventually cost 30 people their lives, eventually cost an entire family being burned at the stake, eventually cost a, 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 an entire region their economy, eventually cost a thousand more people their lives, eventually cost somebody his sight and his freedom, eventually cost everybody. What started as a joke no one understood escalated to wherever. That is the opposite of peacemaking. That is hostility. It's called the hostility cycle. Now, I want to show you a couple lines from those passages, just because it's critical that we, that we understand why this works. And next slide. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? God, it would be terrible to be a woman back then. Take her instead. And Samson said to them, watch this, this is the line. This time I have a right to get even with them. I will really harm them. I have a right to get even. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent. These are the two lines. I have a right to get even. I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. This is premeditated harm where we feel like we're, we're justified. According to the Australian Bureau of Criminal Statistics, 91% of all murders in Australia are morality-based. In other words, verily does somebody just walk in somewhere and stab somebody. It's always, why'd you kill them? Well, if you knew what they did to me, it's, 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 it's I have a right to do you harm. This happens again. Ne next slide. Watch this. <laughs> then, this. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? Well, Samson, the son of the Timnite, because he's taken. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Now watch Samson's response. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I'll be avenged on you. And after that, I'll quit. In other words, once I get even or once I get one up, I'll quit. But if everybody waits till they've got the upper hand to quit, then nobody ever quits. Was it Gandhi that said, if an eye for an eye leave? That is the idea. It's I have a right, and because I have a right to get even, I will be innocent when I harm you. That is the hostility cycle. Here's, and it doesn't ever work well. It just never is, it never creates a world we want to live in. Like here's how it works. Next slide. So you have a fence. Somebody does something, doesn't like how you cut the tomatoes. Then you dehumanize the adversary. This time I have a right. Like, do we have a right to purposely harm somebody? Come on. Right? Then, then, it's, then it's unwillingness to take responsibility for our part in it. At no point in the Samson story does Samson go, you know what? Probably should have just admitted you got me. You plowed with my heifer. I'll close. No, he loses a bet and kills 30 people. Now, today you'd call the police. He'd go to jail forever. Um, back then, it gets written about in a book. That's just how the world was back then. It's like, wow, that's amazing. Um, uh, uh, then there's escalation. This happens, offense, I have a right to get even. And once that, once the belief I have a right to get even, I have a right to harm you, I'll be innocent. When I do you harm, you deserve it. That now, now we've entered into escalation. Next slide. Then, then there's holding the other person responsible for the escalation. Well, since you're the one that acted like, hey, hey, what, how did this, it, you, you, you see this in your children. How did this happen? Well, he did, he started it, he did, right? It's that idea, right? And then there's a failure to learn, which leads to repeating the pattern. That's the, that's the hostility cycle. Offense, moralization, escalation. It's going until every, till everybody gets hurt. Um, so, so a couple thoughts about peacemaking. Blessed are the, the end of hostility. Uh, next slide. The, the cross wasn't solely about forgiveness and freedom. It was about the end of hostility. The, like, like the cross should be the eventual thing that says, actually, I don't have a right to get even. Actually, I don't. Actually, I won't be innocent in harming you. I, actually, I won't. Why? Because of the worldview of the cross and resurrection. Your reconciliation and your redemption matters to God enough to die and come back, so I will... Uh, I, I, I will honor that. Yeah, that, that. That Jesus said it this way. If you want to know what the love of God is, look at flowers and birds. They do nothing. God treats them that way because they're worth it. Love is treating someone as they are. <laughs> yeah, somebody's lost. <laughs> um. Let me get my thought back. 
love, love is treating someone while affirming their worth before God despite of what they deserve. It, it's that. That, 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 that. Not the doctrine of the cross. Oh, we believe in the cross. Okay. But the eventual nature of the cross is I actually, because the cross and resurrection is my worldview, I, I'll never be innocent to purposely do you harm. I don't have a right to get even because, because it, the, the whole thing is one new humanity. If, if there's only one God and that one God's holding all things together, then God is in me, God is in you. So if I harm you, I'm actually hurting God because the same force is holding. No, 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 that, no, no, that doesn't work. Doesn't work. Uh, the cross was a physical manifestation of a new way to live. The most loving person acts first to end the hostility. That's, that's it. That, that, and that's how Paul frames it in Romans. He says that God showed us he loved us and that while we were hostile to God, he died. In other words, God, the, 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 the thing that was so shocking about the gospel was that it was the only time in the history of the world that a God moved first. Every other God in history was you go to certain places at certain times and do certain rituals and certain postures, and then maybe that God will act on your behalf. In Christianity worldview, the Christian worldview says our God moves first, which is fundamentally different. That, 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 that the most, that you see this in marriage. I, I've done over 3,000 hours of marriage counseling. And, and unless you're thinking, how does a single guy do marriage counseling? Uh, first of all, um, I'm qualified in it. Se- second of all, um, almost all advice in the Bible uh, about marriage is from single men. Or someone with a thousand women. But... But there's no such thing as like a monogamous guy going, let me tell you how this works. No. And they died at 32 back then. So till death to us part was totally different. But, right? And they couldn't agree either. Like Solomon is like, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Paul's like, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. Jesus said, and I quote, don't worry about marriage, it's not in heaven anyway. So why do we worry about it so much? But nonetheless, nonetheless. Now, if you, if you hear that quote from Jesus and you go, oh, God, Shane, do that thing you do. Please tell me we're missing something there. I'd love to see my schnookums in heaven. Well, if that's your response, you probably have a good marriage. But if Jesus' quote that there's no marriage in heaven makes you fundamentally and secretly celebrate, Jesus, oh, oh, my God. Oh, live with you for 60 years and you get to heaven and there you are again. God, where's the door to hell? So, the, so if that's your response, if that's your response, you, you probably need to work on your marriage. But so, so the idea is, is that the, the cross was a, was, let, let's, let's say it this way, next slide. Peacemaking is not passive. It's charging in with a different way and changing lives. It's, you, got, you have to, to be a peacemaker, you've got to be intentional about it. I'm going to choose before the day or the week starts that I'm not going to ever have a right to harm you. I'm going to be a peacemaker. The history expert in Jerusalem, he didn't decide in that moment to go, oh. He had made that choice way before. And in my fasting and prayer time in January, I, I got so convicted about this. I, I, I like really moved, like repent, like so sorry. Like, because I, I start, I don't get taken on much. I don't. Maybe twice a year. But in those moments, I go very articulate. You want to debate me? Great. Let's do it. You know what? In 15 years, I've never been so clever as to change someone who didn't want to hear it anyway. All it did was let the outside world see two people who that's stupid, and it's my fault. And so now, it hasn't happened yet this year. No one's taken me on this year, but I, I've practiced and practiced and practiced. When it happens, oh. and I'm just going to be honest and say, it violates my conscience to engage in disputing about disputable things. So is Jesus the Christ? He was crucified. The resurrection is true. Yes. Then we're brothers. I can't. No. no. True. Yeah. We'll have a discussion. But no. 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 But 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 this. Oh no. 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 Um, but it takes an intentional choice 
Now, so, sometimes, so if we understand how hostility works, it's this way. It, it, to understand how peacemaking works, there's two ways to teach it. One is bullet points, right? Like uh, hostility, I told a story and then showed the, the uh, it, but sometimes the better way to teach peacemaking um, is, is through images. And so there's three images. Um, so if you remember, uh, what was it, Matthew 5, 43, uh, don't just love your friends and, and hate your enemies, but love those who persecute you and pray for those that you'll be known as children of God. That's verse 43. 39, 40, 41, and 42 was a three-point about how to make peace, and then, he, and then 43 was his conclusion. And so let, let me show you how Jesus said we can love our enemies. These are the images. Next slide. It's to turn the other cheek. So see, that, see that's verse, I know I'm talking to pastors, but so I want to I be a good exegesis person. See, that's verse 39. So verse 43 is his conclusion, love your enemies, right? right? Verse 39 is, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one also. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, does that work? Is Jesus telling us to just get beat up? Well, to understand this, we got to understand first century Roman class systems. If you want a great book on this, you could read Richard Rohr's book, uh, The Sermon on the Mount. He does a great exegesis of the nine-class Roman class system. Um, ne next slide. Let me, let me explain it this way. So there's a nine-layered Roman class system, uh, just simply one to nine. They had names for each one, but one to nine. And um, uh, Galilean peasants, by the way, were class eight. And so Jesus is talking to them. And because there were different class systems, there was a difference between right-handed slaps and left-handed slaps. So if I was class one, if I was class one and you were class one and we had a problem, I would hit you with my right hand because it's my clean hand. And I would, I, would I would declare your less than meanness, if I can make up that word, with my left hand because it was my unclean hand because it's the hand you wipe your butt with. So it was, you're not even worth my clean hand. I'm going to slap you with my poo-poo hand. It was that. It was that bad. It was that bad. Now look at Jesus' language. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, he's specific. If someone slaps you on your right cheek. Well, hang on. To slap someone on the right cheek, you got to use your... Yes. In other words, if somebody is declaring you as less than them, what do you do? Turn the other cheek. This is not a passivity, just let yourself get beat up. It's also not a be aggressive and fight back. It's nonviolently draw a boundary that says you will address me as an equal. Only present the side of you that makes them address you as an equal, and they will not do it. This is not just take whatever they dish out. This is not stupid advice I've heard that pastors have at times have given abused women. Well, you know, Jesus said turn the other cheek. I mean, like, no, no. That is stupid. I know someone very personally who was choked with a phone cord because she bought the wrong kind of meat. And her pastor said that she had to stay because he hadn't cheated. That is stupid and actually criminal. Um, it, turn the other cheek has nothing to do. It's a metaphor about nonviolent ways of setting boundaries. Listen, we'll discuss it, but you will address me as an equal. Turning the other cheek is when someone yells at you and you go, oh, I'm sorry, we're not having this discussion until you talk to me like a human being. Come on, come on. That's turn the other cheek. Oh, 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 your name called you. I'm so sorry. Peace between us. But we can't have a discussion until we're on equal footing. That's turn the other cheek. That's turn the other cheek. The, the second one, watch this, next one, is verse 40, right? If someone would sue you, take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Now, the first one, you've got to understand Roman class system. Second one, you've got to understand Levitical and Deuteronomy law. Next slide. Yo, did that just go away? So in Hebrew, I'll wait for him to get it back up, but I got this. So in Hebrew culture, in Deuteronomy, if someone, if you owed someone money and they sued you and you could not pay, you could give them your outer coat as a pledge, right? Yeah, yeah you could give them your outer coat as a, as a pledge. Look, I can't pay you now, but here's like a down payment, Right? Now, in first century Galilee, they were living under 87% taxation. 50% of their fish, 30% of their grain, 12.5% to Caesar as the son of God. Roman roads tax to move their goods and services, plus the dodginess of the tax collector and the temple tax. These people were losing their family land that had been in their land since the book of Judges. And then the 3% elite were then hiring them back as slaves to work on the land their family owned anyway. 
And they were taking advantage of these people all the time. And that's who Jesus is talking to. And he says, look, if someone's willing to take your outer coat as a pledge, even though they know your circumstance, just go and give them your inner cloak as well. Well, in, in Jewish culture, there's only two pieces of clothes. You can get naked. If they're going to take this, just give them everything. Why? Check this. Next slide. In Hebrew culture, being naked is not shameful. Seeing nakedness is. So the man, who, the man being soon is placing all the shame on the other while being peaceful because what kind of person would take both clothes? The principle in it is always expose greed with generosity, not with aggression. It's that. It's that. It's, it's, it's like this. If, if, you're, if you're at lunch and the waiter says, how do you want the bill done up? And one person says, split it. And the other person simultaneously says, I'll take it. What will end up happening is they both start arguing over who's going to take it, even though the one already take it. And so what happens is, is the ultra generosity of the one exposes the greed of the other. That you, you don't expose greed through fighting. You expose greed through ultra-generosity. They want that. Just give it all. Just take it. Just take it all. Then, then, then what, next verse. Watch this. Next one. This is verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. Anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. Now, first one is Roman class system. Second one is Deuteronomy law. Third one is Roman military law. In Ro class eight Jews in um, Galilee were class eight, and they were an occupied territory with Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers carried around 70 packs. They had to walk. Are they going to carry their own packs? No. They're going to find someone. You carry my pack. I'm going to walk like this, and you're going to carry the 70-pound pack. Now, Roman military law allowed them to do that, allowed them to, to say you. But here was Roman military law. You could, and look at Jesus' language, force. If anyone forces you, forces you. It's an odd word, forces you. Were these people forced to go one mile? All the time. Because Roman military law said, I could force you to go one mile with my pack, but I cannot force you to go more than a mile. Is, is that they wanted the people to be able to go back to work and pay taxes. So it would have been counterproductive. So you could force someone to go one mile, but Roman military law said, if you force them to go more than a mile, you'll be court-martialed and docked an entire day's wage. So Jesus says, if you want to know how to handle that, um, when they make you go one mile, at the one mile mark, take off and go two. And you'll have a Roman soldier chasing you down to try to get you to stop. You'll flip the script. You expose greed and horror with ultra-kindness and generosity. Go over the top the other way. What's peacemaking? Peacemaking is turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, and, and giving them your tunic and your cloak as well. What's hostility? Hostility is because you've done this, I have a right to do something else. The cross and resurrection doesn't allow that. It just doesn't. It just doesn't allow for that. Which leads me to this last image. Next slide. It's to heal the ear. It's an incredible image from Jesus' life. Um, he's being arrested um, it's such a weird story because he's being arrested in the middle of the night and there's this high priest in training named Malchus who's leading the charge. Now, you can know Malchus is pretty important because one, he's named and they didn't name slaves and two, important people are following him. So he's, uh, but he's also underneath Caiaphas so that if this whole thing goes awry, Caiaphas wasn't there. It's, it's, the, 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 the word is alibi. So Malchus is leading the charge <clears throat> to arrest Jesus. He gets to the garden and says, that's him. Let's get him. Right? Then one of Jesus' disciples picks up a knife or a sword and chops the dude's ear off. Which is an odd story. One, because we know who it was. It was Peter. The question is, how do we know that? Matthew just says a certain companion of Jesus. Mark says one of Jesus' friends. Luke says one of Jesus' disciples. John said it was Peter. So, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like, let's just keep this on the down low. John's like, Peter, I'm throwing him under the bus. Right, And it's such an odd story because it leads to all kinds of questions like, was it legal to chop a man's ear off in the first century? 
Peter physically assaults a guy in front of the police and their response is, oh, crazy Jews. What's up with that? Was that okay? Was it legal? How do you get away with it? What's going on there? Now, to understand this, we got to understand first century Levitical law and who Malchus was. To be a rabbi, you had to earn it. You had to go through years and years and years of school. There's only three people in the whole Bible called rabbi. Jesus, Paul, and Gamaliel. That is it. That is it. It was special. That's why there was a rift between the Pharisees and the priests, because the Pharisees had to earn it. The priests were born into it. It's sort, of like, it's sort of like someone who started with nothing and built their life, being envious of someone who was just inherited a lot, right? A priest was just had to be born. And the problem with that is, is that it's possible then to have a righteous priest who gives birth to a wicked man, and that wicked man then has the right to be the priest. And so they didn't want a wicked man representing them before God, so they had to come up with a way to do them if they were deemed wicked. And they used, they, they used Leviticus 21 uh, to do that. Leviticus 21 gives this long list of things that disqualify priests. And uh, it's quite daunting, actually. Let me show it to you. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face. What an odd, excuse me, sir. You are next in line to be the priest, but you have a mutilated face. Like, that is just unbelievable. Or a limb too long. Like, oh, well, I'm getting a bit of a line, right? Or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand. Or a hunchback or a dwarf. Or a man with a defect in itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. Which, a couple questions on that. One, if someone held you down and crushed your testicles, isn't your last concern on earth whether you could be a priest or not? Like four guys hold you down with two bricks and crush your testicles, and you get up and you're thinking, dadgummit, I can't be a priest anymore. Man! Like if someone holds you down and crushed your testicles, your, your, your last concern on earth is your job. Die now? That's first question. My second question is, is wouldn't the worst job on earth? You imagine that? Mutilated face, check. Limbs seem right, check. Hands, check. Not a dwarf, sir. I'm so sorry. We just have this one more really awkward... Inspection, you're just gonna. Imagine trying to live back then, it'd be weird. Next one. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he can't draw near. So here's what they did. You can read about this in Josephus, in some of Brad Young's works, and some of David De Silva's works. Is if they deemed a priest unredeemable and evil, they would give them a physical blemish. And, uh, and that would disqualify them. And, uh, and what, they, what they defaulted to was something uh, physical people could see. Uh, what they, the, the, the tradition was to uh, pierce the ear, hold them down, pierce the ear, and then pull. Right? And it would hurt. You would get over it. But it would leave you with a, with a physical blemish. Right? Which, let's be honest, if you're going to use Leviticus 21, uh, a, a pierced ear is the better way to go than <laughs> get him. Let's show him. By God, we're going to crush them testicles today. We're going to show him. Like, like, get the bricks, Billy. No, no, you don't want to do that. <clears throat> so they would, they would do that. So my, my Sunday school teacher taught me that Peter was trying to kill the guy and missed. Now, that makes no sense. And God bless uh, peace. But um, think about it. If you got a sword out and you're trying to chop some, and you hit them in the ear hole, that's a direct hit. What's behind him with a knife or a sword? Just, just quickly took it off. What's Peter doing? Why was it legal? Because he's the next in line to be the priest. That's why it was legal. What's Peter saying? Whoa, 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 whoa. You're fixing to kill the real temple? 
then you have no right serving in the temple made with the hands of men. I'm going to make sure you never do. Him, I'm going to disqualify you. I have a right to do that. Remember what Jesus says? Put your sword away. If you live that way, you'll die that way. If you live disqualifying people, somebody's going to disqualify you. In a couple hours, they're going to have a right to do that to you, and you don't want to live that way. You'll, you'll be judged by the same standard with you judge. You put weak. Christians don't do, Christians don't cut ears. We don't, what are you doing? You've been journeying me. You still don't get it? We don't do that. And remember Jesus' response? He reaches down and he puts the man's ear back on. Are you following me here? Like, like Jesus' response to the guy leading the charge to kill him was to heal him. And not only that, was to restore him back to ministry. Which leads me to this question. Who have we disqualified for less than that? Is there anyone whose ears we've taken off because of a sexual mistake? Like, heck, it was 20 years ago or something. Put the man's ear back on. Or, oh, we caught him looking at, wait a minute. Or, or oh, he mishandled this money a little. Okay, all right, have we... Can we get in the middle of that and redeem it? Hang on a second. One of the reasons Christianity is not compelling is in public forums, Christians look for ways to take people's ears off. That is sickening. It should make you sick. Like, wait a minute. Oh, especially with all this catty sort of, when uneducated, they must not have read the same Bible I read. Like, what are you doing? The outside world's looking at that going... Christians should never be the people looking for ways to cut people's ears off. Followers of Jesus look for every way possible to put people's ears back on their head. And here's why that's important. Sunday at your church, there's going to be 5, 10, 20, 30 visitors come in. And they're not going to tell you, but somebody has cut their ear off their head. Their ear is in their hand. Someone's told them you're past this point. Someone's told them you're not going to be. Someone's told them you can't be restored to this. Somebody, somebody, somebody somewhere has cut their ear off their head. And if, if there's nothing that the church ever does well, it should be this. The church of Jesus Christ should be the people screaming loud and clear. At this place, we are committed to whatever it would take to get your ear back on your head. This is where you get a fresh start, a second chance, a do-over, a mulligan. This is, this is where we don't just believe in the cross and resurrection. We fundamentally shape the way we see our whole world. We don't take people's ears off here. We put them back on. Which leads me to this. Is there anybody we need to repent to for cutting their ear off? Or maybe someone's taken yours off and you've held that pain for a while. Part of being a peacemaker is turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, giving your tunic and cloak. But really, if we're followers of Jesus, Jesus restored the ear of the guy trying to kill him how could we ever disqualify? Have you ever heard the phrase, oh, I think they could be forgiven, but they're disqualified from it? Hold on. We lived to 84 now. <laughs> That's a long time to give someone a life sentence at 27. And it's not compelling to the outside world. The church of Jesus Christ should be ear restorers and never, ever, ever ear cutters. Which leads me to... Next, have we received the cross that forgives us while rejecting the cross that ends hostility? Like where has the doctrine of the cross and resurrection, okay, yeah, we're forgiven, but we haven't fundamentally allow it to move us past that to peacemaking. We, we have a right, hey, do you know what they did? We can cut his ear off. Do you know what they did? We have a right to talk about them. Come on. Um, is there any place that we're escalating violence right now? Like, like only, I'm not asking you to answer, but like right now in your marriage, is there, is there a bit of escalation going on and somebody's got to act first to end it? And who's going to act first? The one who's most mature is going to act first. So be the mature one. Or maybe there's something going on with somebody in your church. Maybe we're, we're, we're actually participating in the escalation. 
Um, three, where do you need to act first and be a peacemaker? I mean, we, we should wrestle with these things. And next slide. Whose ear do we need to repair? Is there anybody who, who, who we've watched their ear be taken off and we need to be the phone call saying, hey, hey, there's, there's some stitches we could put in there. We, we, it, it'll be okay. And Jesus has given his life for us. What are we offering back to him? Like Jesus, the cross is I move first. Will you move first with others? Jesus called us to initiate mercy, not just give it when it's asked for. That's different. It's different. Maybe we can wrap the whole day up with this one question. Next. What if the cross was God saying, how far do I have to go for you all to get along? What if it's that? What if that worldview is more compelling than the rest? So, my fellow brothers and sisters and heroes of the faith who are pastoring churches, keep going. Live for the glory of God. Be peacemakers so that you may be called sons of God. Thanks for letting me be a part of your day. Um, afterwards, uh, I've got a table back there. A lot of you knew about it. I forgot to mention it in the first. 100% of our profit uh, uh, goes to make the, the world better for people who are poor and afflicted. And so uh, CDs, DVDs, USB. Um, if you know before I leave, I'm going to get something. If you could do that first um, and so that we're not here forever and ever and ever. Um, because if you get hungry, you'll turn on me anyway. So um, I, 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 love you, I, love you, I love you very much. Um, may you know that your ear has been restored and may you respond to that by being committed to restoring others' ears. Grace and peace. God bless. Stay tuned for another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church.